Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From the small towns to the big cities, we bring you the stories that matter. This is, this is, this is the Our American Stories podcast. This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. They work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about a great country that may not be perfect, but is beautiful. If you'd like to support us in all that we do here, visit OurAmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. Join our team in the work that they do and become a part of all that's going on here. We are a nonprofit. 
and we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And now today we bring you the story of Ford versus Ferrari. Also, we'll bring you the story of Shiana Rashid, who went from the KKK to marrying a Muslim man. But first, the cloud-juicing entrepreneur who bottles rainwater. The idea behind Richard's rainwater started because of a dirty Texas well. Well, I moved out to uh, Dripping Springs. I lived in Austin, Texas, and moved out to Dripping Springs to help my sister-in-law build the Austin Zoo out. It's her, her parents had this property out there. And Susie, my wife, and her sister lived out there, and her sister was uh, raising goats, and anyway, it turned into a zoo. So I moved to Dripping Springs and built a house, and out here in the hill country, there's no other source for water except for well water. And so I drilled a well, and the well guy was he was leaving with a fistful of my dollars, says, Mr. Heineken, you have a lot of water there. That's a darn good well, a good flowing well. And I went, oh, man, I was so excited. Go in the house, brand new house, right, and took a shower. The hydrogen sulfite was so bad, I almost threw up in the shower, and the water was so hard when Susie did the laundry, the uh, Levi's could stand up in the corner and our hair stood out like fright wigs. <laughs> and we said, man, we can't handle this. Called a uh, softener guy. He said, oh, yeah, that's some pretty damn hard water there. You can, I can put you two tandem water softeners together. And went, oh, my God. So I looked into solutions and I ran across a doctor who became a good friend of mine, Mike McKelvin who had started catching rainwater for his wife to really realize the well water out here basically kills plants. It uh, chokes their leaves. If you spray it on their leaves, it carbonizes over so they can't, they, they suffocate. So he started a rainwater collection for his wife's roses and they flourished and his house flourished. He, went, he got into putting it in his house. And he flourished and he was a really advocate for it. And I met him and I became one myself. So I looked into storage and found a fiberglass manufacturer in Texas and ordered a fiberglass tank and put it in and did a real real Goldberg job and it was all kind of new technology. But just plumbing is all it was. So it's just the water level. Water, if your gutter's higher than the tank entrance, it goes in by itself, right? And so I did that and hooked up a pump to it and I took a shower and I was the happiest guy in the world. The soap just came right off. It lathered up like you can't believe. It smelled wonderful. It drank good. And the dishes, instead of being chalky, all of a sudden became uh, clear. So my neighbor comes over and says, uh, God, would you guys just buy some new dishes? And I said, no, we're just washing them in rainwater now. He said, oh my God. Well, I've been buying new dishes every three years and a new dishwasher every three years. So I want that. So I went called back the fiberglass guy and said, hey, I want to be a distributor. And uh, he said, okay, well, let's work a deal. And so so I was selling fiberglass tanks like crazy. I was the biggest tank salesman in the whole planet. I put in you know, literally hundreds of these things, and I've got a thousand people that were relying on Tank Town as their source for rainwater filters and, you know, maintenance prop things. And 
So that's how it happened. Then one day, I'm putting in these rainwater systems. I have a crew of guys, and I'm filling up our water for our consumption to keep cool. The whole crew, you know, in a in one of those igloo five-gallon water buckets. One day we ran out, super hot day, sun, sun in July, and I so I said, okay, guys, I got I'm going back home to fill up our water again. They said, okay, hurry back. So on the way, I thought, you know, I should be able to pull into a store and buy this stuff. And the bulb went off, right? So I went, okay. And then, so then I was just focused on bottling this stuff. So I read the the regulations on a water supply. Realized that I needed to be a, a sort of a, a licensed operator to run a water supply. So I was started going to correspondence schools, and I went to Berkeley, Cal, and Texas A&M, and I got my I got a license to be a public water supply operator. Got a permit number and all, and. Then I started building a plant, and anyway, then I get to TCQ, the, the government agency that over, oversees our water supply in Texas, and they said, "Well, Mr. Heineken, that's a pretty good idea, but rainwater is not approved as a source for water." I said, "Okay, so where are you getting your water?" He goes, "Well, you know where we get our water. We get it out of Lake Travis. But where does that come from?" Well, you know, it has. It's like rain. I said, "Okay." <laughs> That's okay, so I'm going to, that's what, I, you know, so we need to make this, be able to have this as a source for water. Went, oh, I, I don't know, sir. And another thing, Mr. Heineken, now that we got this conversation going, we can't talk to you anymore because you're not a licensed engineer. So I went, okay, great. Well, I will come back. So I just had to prove it to them that it was a good source for water. So I built a little pilot bottling plant, and they said they approved that. Build it with my own bare hands. I'm a blacksmith. I'm a sculptor. I've cut the pipes and and used transits and got the right things and welded everything up. And then we go out and put more systems in. And I get more some more money. Go out and buy more metal. Put it all up. Then I thought, man, this is I'm I can't really start this yet. I got the plants going. I got everything going. I need some tanks. I ended up buying 13 tanks and we had like 250,000 gallons. And, and then I had the engineers and he's a friend of mine and basically wrote it on a napkin. I said, here, write this out, make it look real official. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna mic. We're going to put it through really tiny filters and we're going to separate it after it goes into a couple of tanks and then we're going to put it through UV light and then we're going to store it in a sanitary tank and then we're going to put, just before we bottle, we're going to put ozone in it. Now ozone, it's a really great sanitizer. City water supplies use chlorine and chlorine is a cancer-causing chemical and so we didn't want to do that. The Clean Water Act required public water supplies to use chlorine and there's no other source of sanitation they would approve. You know, I have a saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. And it's the same thing these cities use. They just say, well, okay, here's a 10 gallons of chlorine. And so we're going to have to mix that with 13,970 gallons of water. And that'll do it. Okay, it might taste a little chlorine, but anyway, can't do that. And so my plan was, I said, okay, here's the deal. If you take me to court, and I'll, and here's a little end of it. We have to end up in court. I'm going to tell the jury that... Okay, here's what they want me to do with my rainwater. They want me to put chlorine in it, and that will cause cancer, possibly, 
And then rainwater, we've already proved it has no cancer-causing byproducts in it from the way we sanitize it. So it seems like a, a really smart thing to do. And so, and then also, if you say I can't do it, then then it'll be it won't be good because the jury is going to say, well, Mr. Heineken, we certainly don't want you to get cancer. So I, we like your idea. They said, well, we kind of like your deal, and it's also sustainable. And then we started doing testing on it and and then did their monthly reports, and it all always came back just beautiful. And at that point, more people in Austin and out in the Hill Country were getting into rainwater collection. So everybody's calling this interest and saying, hey, uh, I, I, w- I want to put a whole rainwater system in my house. So four years later, we got the first public water supply using rainwater as a sole source of water without using chlorine, and then that's it. It's all over town, and it's a pretty damn good feeling. So it's a it's a future water. There's no doubt about it. It's a, still the purest water on the planet because it did never touch the ground. As soon as it touches the ground, it turns to trash. The deeper water goes, people say, oh, man, my well's 10,000 feet deep. But, oh, man, that's 9,999 feet of trouble above it. It's just the perfect water, but it's a little difficult to get. But Richard makes the bottling process sound pretty easy. After catching it and put it in a, in a collection tank, that's the first thing to do. Like the city of Austin doesn't have to worry about that because they just suck it out of the lake. We have to put it in a tank that has no light in it because light makes algae and algae is, is, a, is not our friend. And then we process that through uh, more filtrations and then UV light. And then uh, finally, just before it goes into our bottling line, we add uh, ozone to it and only lasts 15 minutes. And then we put it in the bottle and we seal the top of the bottle. So that's a perfectly pure bottle of water because there's no trihalomethanes in it, no chemicals in it. And it's just, it's just a beautiful bottle of water and you can taste it immediately. When you taste it, it's sweet because rainwater cleans your mouth. I know it's kind of gross, but there's calcium on your teeth. All day long it's building up calcium. It washes that off. It's just amazing. So I've never had anybody say, boy, that's a lousy bottle of water. It's always, hey, this is the best darn bottle I've ever had. And it's just, that's the fact. That's what kept us going because it's the absolute truth. There's any kind of comparison of another bottle of water. It's just... Like blind testing is just kind of a simple thing to do because you just, it's so obvious. And I've come, been through a lot of them, and rainwater always prevails. And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery. And you've been listening to Richard Heineken, and he's the owner of Richard's Rainwater. And, well, the bottled water and everything else comes out for sale from Dripping Springs, Texas. That's where the company is. And you can find out more if you aren't near Dripping Springs by going to richardsrainwater.com. That's richardsrainwater.com. Check them out to find out more. We love telling stories about American entrepreneurship and American hobbyists and tinkering because that's what he was doing here, folks. He was just trying to solve a problem for himself and folks around him. If you love what you're listening to and the stories we bring you every week, please... Give us a five-star rating. It helps us out on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to us on. And by the way, if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. 
and click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, the story of Ford versus Ferrari and the making of the Ford GT. That's the unmistakable sound of American V8 muscle that revs the hearts of the young and old alike. For some, the feeling has been with them since childhood, but for a lot of Americans, the thrill of high RPM V8s is new, and the introduction came for many with the Hollywood hit film Ford vs. Ferrari. That movie tells the story of how in the mid-1960s, Ford Motor Company decided to get into racing with one goal, beat Ferrari, the Goliath of endurance racing. In 1964, Ford set a goal of beating Ferrari in the most famous endurance race, the 24 Hours of Le Mans. It took a few tries, but after three years of racing with the Ford GT, Ford did win, and they would continue to win, beating Ferrari for the next three years at Le Mans. And how did they do it? They built a supercar called the Ford GT40. In 2003, Ford decided to take on Ferrari a second time, building an updated version of the same car but this one would be available for the public. Here's Bill Ford Jr., chairman of the Ford Motor Company, announcing the return of the Ford GT at the 2002 Detroit Auto Show. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the return of the GT40. Ford had decided to build a show car for the 2002 Detroit Auto Show. The thing was an absolute hit. It was really a hit. That's Neil Ressler, and at Ford, he's a legend. He's worked with Ford Performance Cars since the 60s, holding just about any job you can think of at the company that involves cars going fast. Neil became a vice president at Ford in 1994, and then he retired in 2001, but he continued to do work with Ford on special projects. And one day while at the Ford headquarters, he bumped into Bill Ford Jr. I felt some hands on my shoulder and I looked up and it was Bill Ford Jr. who was the chairman at the time. And he said, uh, so we got this show car in the Detroit show that's going on right now. It's just taken the, the, the show by storm. People say I should put it in production. I don't even know if I should. You might be thinking, why was that even a question? But the thing about a show car is they aren't really road ready. The show car was really a three-dimensional picture. It made a lot of noise, but you wouldn't have driven it more than five miles an hour. I mean, it looked great, but it wasn't a car. Bill Ford Jr. could think of a lot of reasons to not put the Ford GT into production. This project would be expensive, and the project might fail. Furthermore, the Ford Motor Company wasn't known for these kind of projects. People thought of Ford, and they thought reliability, nicely built trucks, a little bit sporty Mustang, but the Ford GT was something entirely different. In spite of that, Ford had one very big reason to build this car. They were about to celebrate an anniversary. Finally tonight here, Made in America, the Ford factory celebrating its 100th birthday. Celebrating 100 years at Ford's Rouge factory means looking at the past while keeping your eyes on the future. Looking at the past while keeping your eyes on the future. That's what the Ford GT project was all about. And that's why Bill Ford decided to go ahead with production of the Ford GT. And according to Neil Ressler, there was another reason Ford needed a project like this. We needed, uh, we needed something to talk about. We were a little bit light on uh, product at the time. Building a modern version of the Ford GT40 was a chance to rebrand the image of the company, or as insiders at Ford would say, polish the blue oval. It had captured the imagination, both of the magazines and the newspapers and the prospective buyers. So Ford made a lot of it, but uh, it came at a time when we needed to have something made of it. Bill Ford Jr. asked Neil Ressler to come back to Ford for one more project. 
And Neil's specialty was racing. And finishing this car in time for the centennial celebration, it was going to be a race. We had to have a finished car in June of 2003 because that was going to be the Ford Centennial Celebration, which was a major blowout. The Ford Centennial was going to be huge. Ford knew the event was an opportunity to highlight how Ford Motor Company had been a consistent thread in the fabric of 20th century America. During that century, Ford had invented the consumer car in the form of the Model T. Then during World War II, they quit making cars and built airplanes, tanks, and jeeps, which were vital to winning the war. After the war, Ford reimagined the sports car for the post-war generation. As a result, Americans not only drove their car to work, but in a Ford Mustang, they looked cool doing it. And of course, they dominated endurance racing in the 1960s with the Ford GT40. In each of these cases, Ford had attempted a moonshot, something that seemed nearly impossible, and in each case, they'd succeeded. The reissue of the Ford GT in 2003 was a chance to do that again and remind people that the Ford Motor Company was woven into the fabric of America. But building three production-level cars before this event, well, that was going to be tough. 16 months, that's the amount of time the team had to build a car, basically from scratch. We had less than two years from the start to get the finished cars ready, get design, develop, test, develop a supply base, get a factory up. We didn't have a car, we didn't have a location, we didn't have a team, we didn't have any suppliers lined up, we didn't have anything. All we had was a dream. Given his background in racing, Neil knew exactly what he would need on this team to make it work. We would obviously have to form a very small core team and I was interested in having guys but who'd been involved in motor racing. And the reason for that is that, that if you're an engineer in motor racing, and most of all you're concerned with timing, and there's never enough time in racing, because as the old saying goes, the race starts. The only question is whether you're there. So Neil started to assemble a team made up of a lot of people who came out of professional racing. Primarily, I would always tell people, what I do is help make the cars go fast through the corners. That's the voice of Scott Allman. He was one of the first engineers that Neil chose to help build the car. And Scott was the profile of the kind of person Neil wanted on his team. He was in my motorsports department. He had spent at least, I think, two years with uh, Bobby Rahal's team down in, uh, in Ohio. Rahal was very impressed with Scott, as I was too. My vehicle dynamics role at Team Rahal was to help figure out the best setup for our elite drivers at some of the fastest racetracks in the world. Neil asked Scott to be part of the design team. For Scott, there were a lot of good reasons to take this job. The GT40 was Scott's favorite car. He loved this car so much that before the program started, the Ford GT40 was his screensaver. And don't tell anybody this, but all of Scott's passwords included GT40 in some way. But despite his love for the GT, Scott knew this was going to be nearly impossible. The normal program would be like three years with almost three times the amount of people versus our 14 months with one third of the people. The pressure on the design team was going to be immense. And the challenges of finishing this car in time, well, they were real. Despite these problems, Scott really wanted to work on this car. And that car actually, just, just the style of the car, the beauty of the car, was my favorite car in the world. But it wasn't going to be easy. We obviously only had time for one pass. You had to design it and develop it, and you didn't have time to fix anything. It was, it was going to be what it was. And when he was introduced to a guy named John Coletti, the director of engineering, he told Scott the score. He said to me, he said, well, we have no time, no budget, no people, 
No choice. Welcome to the team, Allman. All of that was absolutely right on. And timing wasn't the only problem. At the beginning, all we had was, was the body. Anything underneath was not done. We had to start from scratch. In the early days of the program, Scott didn't think this job could get done. Even with my experience of working 70 to 100 hours a week, deadlines every single week in racing, in IndyCar and then in NASCAR, this seemed, this seemed really insurmountable, impossible. But Ford didn't see it that way. The eyes of the company were on us, and uh, they were expecting us to succeed, and the failure is just not going to work. The Ford Motor Company had its 100th anniversary coming up in July of 2003. And to mark the occasion, they wanted to do the impossible. They wanted to build a supercar in the image of the Ford GT40 that beat Ferrari in the 1960s Le Mans races. And they didn't just want this car to look good. They wanted this car to beat Ferrari, just like they had 30 years earlier. Here again is Neil Ressler, the project's director. We picked as our image cars a Ferrari 360. After nearly 30 years, Ford was going to take on Ferrari again, this time selling a supercar. But beating Ferrari, the makers of the best supercars in the world, was no guarantee. Given the extraordinary time pressures that were placed on this team, this project was different than anything Ford had done before, at least since 1963. And Neil's decision to pick people who'd been involved in professional racing was essential to completing this project. Here again is Scott Allman, one of the chief engineers on the project. What we would say in racing is you have to unload fast. Basically, the car has to be fast as soon as we unload because we have so little time before we race. It was the same, same kind of mentality, the same mindset, the same importance on the Ford GT program because we didn't have time to iterate. We had to get it right the first time. And according to Scott, a lot of people within Ford didn't even think this project would be a success, so they backed away. I mean, there was almost no one who thought that we would achieve the performance at the cost we were supposed to achieve it at and within the timing. The short amount of time was certainly a challenge, but it also created an unexpected opportunity for the team. Executives not directly attached to the program begin to back off, and the team got an enormous amount of room to operate in the way that they wanted. So beyond just not having to have meetings for meetings, we didn't have all this tracking and checking that would go on typically at Ford and everybody trying to understand your status of every element of design, every part of the timeline. We didn't have this tracking and checking. And that allowed the team to operate more like a racing team. The Ford Centennial in June of 2003 was our race day. We had to have three production level cars ready for the Centennial. By viewing the Ford Centennial as a race day, all these engineers with racing experience really became comfortable with the process. No, there wasn't going to be any real race, but they saw the Ford Centennial as the starting line. When you do racing, you can't show up late. That's Mark McGowan, and he was the test driver for the program. It's like you have to get it done and show up at the start line. Nobody's going to wait for you. If you can't make it, they're going to leave without you. And Neil Ressler felt the same way. We were only going to have time for one design iteration. There was definitely not going to be time to go back and fix things, so they had to work the first time. And that meant there would be plenty of long nights in this program. So my first all-nighter on the program was two weeks in. I think he was working on the tire design. We all went home, you know, 7 o'clock at night, head home. Of course, we come back in at 7 in the morning, and there's still Scott because Scott needs to get this thing done. And I'd spent an all-nighter 
and I was wearing the same clothes the next morning when my manager came in and he looked at me and he did a double take and he's like, did you stay here all night? And I said, yeah. And he said, we're not doing that on this program. And I said, what choice do we have? And that became the mentality of the 30 person team. They worked for the next 14 months, getting that car ready quickly. And out of that, the team developed a motto, no churning. No churning came from our director, John Coletti, and really it was an important aspect of the program that once a decision was made, and pretty much every decision was big on the Ford GT, but once a decision was made, it was not revisited unless there was really a a major issue. It was like racing. We had race day. We couldn't push back that deadline. Because Neil Ressler had put together a team that was used to the pressures of a deadline, they did get their cars built. And in a few months, the first prototype was ready to test drive. Fortunately, our first drive by our ride and handling development guys in the first prototypes, they were really quite happy with how the car behaved. Right out of the box, this car was an eye-opener. It doesn't take long to realize that this car is going to be good. Making the car an extension of the driver was the goal. You knew the car was so good because you didn't think about it. The car would just go where your mind put it. And it was like your brain was hardwired to the vehicle. It just did what your brain said to do. And it was so effortless. They were just excited about the car and it was just, it was so different than what they had experienced before first level prototypes. After one lap, we knew this was gonna be really a good car. It didn't have any problems, nothing. It just worked. It's just so rewarding. It's, it's actually intoxicating. It's almost almost like a drug. It exceeded what they had experienced in the past by far. This thing is going to be something, and it's going to be something very special. The first drive was a huge success, but later the team needed to push this car to its limits. That's why they went to Italy's Nardo Ring. I really was insisting the, that the top speed start with a two. I wasn't interested in anything that was going to go 199. We had to have something that would go over 200. We couldn't do that anywhere in America. The only place we could go was Narda. I think it's like an eight-mile oval or something. The Nardo Ring is a famous test track in Italy designed for high-speed testing. Speed records of all sorts have been achieved at Nardo, and Neil knew the team could push the Ford GT to its limits there. It was flat foot the whole time. Here again is test driver Mark McGowan and he was going to drive the Ford GT to its limits. The first time we ever got one of these cars over 205 miles an hour was in Italy at a track called Nardo. I can still hear the distinctive tink of the accelerator pedal hitting the aluminum floor and just sitting there for four laps, never lifting. And that's a little mind-blowing. It's like, I haven't lifted, and I've been on the floor for 15 minutes now. And of course, after 15 minutes, you're out of gasoline. You go through 18 gallons of gas in 16 minutes, by the way. <laughs> the testing at the Nardo ring was an extraordinary success. McGowan drove that car around the eight-mile ring at 212 miles an hour. The team knew what they had in the Ford GT, and they were excited to get some of the automotive magazines to review the car. We're pretty much at the end of the program. We're at a track on the western Michigan called Gingerman. Car and driver was invited to come out and drive the car. After all that work, production, and testing, the day of reckoning had arrived. They show up with a Ferrari 360 Stradalia. Hold on a second. The Stradalia was the race version of the 360 Modena. This wasn't the car that they were trying to beat. 
This was the much faster car that Ferrari produced. That car was specifically meant for running at, at the racetrack. For 14 months, all of the targets had been based on the Modena, not the Stradale. So how would the Ford GT compare to the Stradale? We didn't know. We didn't have one of those to compare against. And so we, you know, we weren't sure. But they tested it anyway against the Ford GT. And what did Car and Driver and Motor Trend and Road and Track have to say? First place, Ford GT. It wasn't even a contest. And if we had wanted to make this a real challenge, we would have had to go way up the supercar price ladder. The GT narrowly edged the Ferrari in the lane change and track lapping test. Two second per lap advantage over Ferrari. Far more downforce than the Ferrari Modena. Much easier to drive hard than the Ferrari 360. The Ford was the quickest in a straight line in every measured test. Ferrari 360 Modena, a wonderful car that the GT should be able to leave in its dust. Return of the Ferrari Slayer. The Ford GT passed its test with flying colors. It had beaten Ferrari. But there was still one thing waiting for them. Race day, the Ford Centennial. And did they make it? You bet they did. Ford was so excited about this car that they bought a Super Bowl commercial to brag about it. Introducing the Ford GT. This is the one. The pace car for an entire company. In fact, Neil gave a speech to the entire team at the celebration just before the car was introduced. I said, you know, I'm at the end of my career. For me, this will likely be the highlight of my career. But you guys, you will remember until the day you leave Ford and, and even after that. Being my dream car, and this is all I wanted to do, it was an incredible program. See it from start to finish, for sure. It was, you know, I mean, there was a lot that kept me there. What, what other job would anybody else want? It was the car to work on. It was definitely a pinnacle. It was the highlight of my career. As far as I can tell, everyone who was on the program regards it as the highlight of their career and I regard it that way myself. They'd done it. They delivered a car to the starting line for the Ford Centennial celebration. They'd beaten Ferrari. And by treating the project like a race team, they didn't just recast history, they ended up creating a modern day classic that became for Ford Motor Company, a pace car for a new generation. And a special thanks to John Elfner, for digging in on that story, and it's a classic, an American classic. And my goodness, we got to hear from test driver Mark McGowan, Scott Allman, and Neil Ressler, legends in the business. We needed something to talk about at Ford, they said, especially given that the 100th anniversary was coming. We needed to polish the blue oval. And by the way, there would be no churning on this small 30-man team. It should be a motto for everybody in business. That is, once a decision has been made, let's not revisit it unless we have to. Let's move forward and hit the mark and get the car out on race day. They knew it was going to be a good car early, by the way, on the very first drive. And my goodness, what we learned in the end is that there was a return of the Ferrari Slayer. And as always, we want to thank the great folks at Hillsdale College for being sponsors of all of our great stories about American history and American life. If you're interested in a college that teaches all the good things in life and all the beautiful things in life, by all means, it's a perfect place to go to school 
and learn such things. I teach there two weeks a year. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And finally, we meet Shiana Rashid, a young woman who struggled with her family being in the KKK, rebelled against them, and then married a Middle Eastern Muslim man. Here's Shiana. Growing up, I didn't know my extended family from my mom's side. Most of the information, if not all the information that I got was from stories that she told me. And I remember from a very young age these really colorful stories of wizards and knights keeping neighborhoods safe. And it gave me a sense of pride in what my family was. The stories that my mom were telling me were positive, uh, and I just didn't know better. Once I hit about age 10, I remember going through a box of belongings from my mother's childhood. And I I remembered back to the stories and I was really excited to, to get to see, you know, pictures of my mom when she was little. And we were going through it and I saw a, a couple things. I saw some clan flags, some cups, some wooden chalices that had KKK carved into them. Still didn't really think anything of it. I still didn't fully understand what the KKK was, what our connection to it was. And then as we were looking through, I found a four by six photo and it was of a man in, in a clan outfit with the hood. And he was standing next to a woman that was in blackface. And she had a noose around her neck, lightly around her neck, and he was holding it up. And I could tell the woman was smiling. And initially, just seeing the, the picture first off, I felt nauseous. I knew that this picture was bad. Nothing about this picture was good. I didn't need any context in it. And so, hoping that it was some type of mistake, I gave it to my mom and I asked her what it was. And she smiled. And I immediately remember thinking, what an odd reaction to such a disturbing photo. To smile. And then she goes on to tell me that it was her mom and dad and they had dressed up for a Halloween clan meeting. And they had actually won prizes for their costume because everybody loved it so much. And that was the first time that I remember digging a little bit deeper into the stories that I heard growing up. And I asked her, so then what is the KKK? Because now she's talking about how how they were in the clan and and all these meetings. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that these are the same stories that she was proud of. And she gives me a little bit backstory about how the KKK was this group of white Protestants who were trying to keep their race alive and to keep their race safe. She gave me an example of a black family that had moved into a house in her neighborhood. And it posed a threat to her father and the other clan members. They were not happy that this family had moved in. 
and to run them out, they spray painted the N-word across their lawn, on their car, on their garage door. When that didn't work, they started burning crosses on their front lawn until eventually that family moved out. And she told me that story and kind of looked at me like that was a complete explanation. And But I was still confused. And so I asked her, well, why is it bad for a black family to move into your neighborhood? Where's the fear in that? Why is that bad? And she said, you know, there's black people and then there's N-word. And once a black family moves into your neighborhood, then it's just a matter of time before another one does. And then before you know it, your neighborhood is the new ghetto and it's filled with drug and crime. And I was like, what does that have to do with them being black? That's when she went into her whole explanation of the difference between black people and N-word. And I said, well, then how do you know what type of black person they were? If all they did was move in and just them moving in was bad enough, were they N-word? Did you get to know them? The conversation started to feel a little bit hostile. My mom was kind of shocked that I was not receiving the information with joy like she was sending it. And that was kind of the first time that I realized that I don't think I agree with my mom on on some things that I think are pretty important. And after that, the topic of race is something that I kind of avoided because it made me uncomfortable. Just knowing that I, I disagreed so strongly We weren't going to get to an agreement, and I was not in a position of any type of power to change her mind. So it was was really something that I tried to avoid altogether. I avoided it for the most part, but sometimes it would boil up and become too much to handle. I remember... I was probably about 15 years old, and there was a news report on the TV that there had been a crime and they were looking for a suspect, and the suspect just so happened to be black, and they put up his picture. And it just was another news story. I didn't think anything of it, but it had ignited another conversation about race. And my mom and my stepdad were just kind of bouncing off of each other these hateful comments in regards to black people in general and giving this specific news story as an example as to why black people are dangerous, why black people do not hold jobs, why they do drugs, they commit crimes, and this is the proof. And it shocked me. And so I I let them speak, and then I kind of raised my hand and was like, can I chime in? And I could tell immediately my mom knew I wasn't going to chime in with anything that she was going to agree with. And I said, all these things that you're saying that black people do, I've seen white people do. So what's the reasoning 
that white people commit crimes and do drugs. The whole atmosphere changed, and then all of a sudden it was all eyes on me. How dare you compare us to black people? Well, you tell me that my biological father, who was white, is a drug addict. You don't work. So you're saying these things, and I'm seeing similarities in behavior between white and black people, so maybe it doesn't have anything to do with skin color. Maybe it goes deeper. Almost immediately, the conversation was shut down. I was sent to my room. I was grounded. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. It was basically boiled down to the fact that I was young and naive and uneducated. And that is why I was spewing these quote-unquote half-truths. Along that same year, I was a freshman in high school. I finally started, you know, getting an interest in boys and I wanted to start dating. And it was always a rule. You have to ask before you're allowed to date. There's things that we need to talk about, go over, blah, blah, blah. So I I bring up the conversation. I say, you know, there's a boy I have a crush on. Um, I would, you know... I think he might ask me to be his girlfriend, and I I really want to say yes, so let's have this conversation. And while I thought the conversation was going to be about safe sex and um, relationships, it, it wasn't. My mom sat me down and said, you cannot date a black boy. Well, why? What if he's really nice? What if he's, you know, really handsome and and really funny. No, you cannot bring home a black boy. If you bring home a black boy, I'll disown you. You won't be able to live in this house if you date a black man. I I mean, I was speechless. (laughs) I wasn't surprised, but that's when I knew, okay, so if I do want to do this, then it's going to have to be done in secret. So at that point... You know, my mom was kind of waiting. Oh, I thought you had this boy that you had a crush on. I thought you were going to bring him over. I lied. No, he turns out he didn't like me. He liked somebody else. When in reality, it, it was a black boy. And I had to date him in secret. And he wanted to know, why don't we ever go over and, and hang out at your house? You know, I had like a trampoline and a pool. Why don't we go, you know, hang out, go swimming, And I would just, I would have to lie. It's really messy. I don't really like my house. And I'm not allowed to have anybody over. In reality, I I truly had to hide this person from my family because I was afraid of not only what they would do to me, but what they would do to him if they found out that he was black. So at 17, because of other disagreements, I disagreed on many different things with my mom. I was kicked out. I was still in high school. And I started staying with one of my best friends and her and her family were from India. And it was the first time in my life that I felt no anxiety about how I saw the world. I felt no fear in expressing my affection towards other people despite their color and I quickly realized this was the best thing to happen to me living 
under a, a roof that was filled with such hateful conversations was weighing on me and I didn't even I didn't even realize that I could live without that experience. I didn't realize that I could come home to a situation that didn't make me want to vomit. And this family that I moved in with for, I lived with them for about a year, they fully accepted me. They never not once made me question or, or feel like I was different from them or they were different from me. They allowed me into their um, religious worship in their temple and they showed me their culture and they they let me kind of take their culture as my own and that's when I knew there are other people in the world that don't see color as a bad thing and those are the people that I need to surround myself with because those are the people that make me feel good so that's what I continued to do I had friends and romantic relationships of every which color, every which gender, and I felt happy. I felt normal. I didn't have to hide anything. I wasn't being talked down to about anything. I was finally able to surround myself with people that thought like me. That almost immediately removed all hateful conversation from my life. In 2012, I met my husband. We worked together in a, a retail store, and I immediately had a crush on him. I thought he was like Arab or Middle Eastern, and I just thought it was so exotic, and I was like, oh, I, I just have to talk to him. And so I eventually kind of warmed up to him, and he never asked about my family in detail. I just told him there isn't a family. It's just me. That's it. In reality, I was not in contact with them. And even if I was, I would not have been able to bring him home. And he did offer for me to meet his family and I resisted. And the reason I resisted was because I was scared that the own prejudice that I grew up with in my family, um, I thought that was normal. And I thought that his family was going to judge me for not being the same culture that they were, to, for not being the same religion. They're from Kurdistan, which is like a little governance in Iraq, and um, they were Muslim, although they didn't practice it, quote-unquote. That was their fundamental belief system, and I didn't share that with them. I was still very active in Hinduism. I still really believed in that, and I was just kind of this, like, free-spirit hippie. And I didn't think that they would accept me. I thought that they would be upset that their son was dating a white woman. And I didn't want to ruin a good thing. So it took me three years before I finally felt confident enough in what my husband was saying, that his family doesn't care and they already know I'm white, it doesn't matter. And so I started to get to know them and it was amazing. They never brought it up in a negative light that I was white. They only asked once if I was interested in converting to Muslim and that was when we were getting married. And when I said no, that was the last conversation. Never even thought to bring it up again. 
and they fully accepted me for who I was, despite the fact that I was different from them. And it was a shock almost because I didn't realize it could be like this in family dynamics, that they really could just not care who their children love as long as they treat them well. Around this time, maybe a little bit before, my stepdad had started to reach out to me again, and he held different views than my mom. He was not as strict. He didn't have the same harsh upbringing. He didn't have any connection to the clan or anything like that, and he himself had friends that were black or Puerto Rican or a, a different race. So I knew he was more understanding and forgiving and accepting than my mom. So he reached out, I think with the hopes that reconnecting with him would help me reconnect with my mom. But unfortunately, our problems were just kind of far too deep. And we were both just so unwavering in our decisions and in our thoughts we couldn't make up, but my stepdad kind of entered my life a little bit. I kept him at an arm's length and everything was fine. I eventually introduced him to my husband a little bit before we got married and his reaction was fine. Initially had a little bit of hesitation and he asked me, you know, where's he from? What religion is he? And when I told him, he said, you know, you really need to be careful. Muslim men like to control their women. He's going to, you know, take some of your freedoms away. And I just stopped him right there. And I said, you're misunderstanding his culture. And you're assuming that these radical beliefs are standard and they're not. That's what you see on TV. His family is not like that. I have been with him for three years, three and a half years. I'm still this crazy hippie that I just do whatever I want. I'm covered in tattoos. I have piercings. He doesn't control me. You're misunderstanding and you just kind of need to take a step back and and realize that people are not the way that you think that they are. And he said, okay, all right, I'm sorry. And he never brought it up again. And he continued to see my husband and they hung out and they spent time together. And he really grew to have a fondness for him. And he saw that he treated me well. And he took care of me when I needed it, when I was sick, when I had my surgeries. You know, my husband was right there by my side. So in 2016, when we were getting married, we knew we were going to have a very small, non-denominational wedding. We held different views on religion, and we didn't want our wedding to be about that. We wanted it to just be about us, and we knew we only wanted our immediate family there. So when I told my stepdad, he received it positively. He was very happy. He said, you know, Z is a great guy. He treats you really well. I'm really happy for you. So I invited him and my sister to the wedding because I was fairly confident that it was not going to end in a racial debate. And I was right. It was great. Um, we took everybody out to eat after our wedding. And afterwards, my stepdad actually gave me the money back for the meal. And kind of looking back, I think he felt some guilt. He saw how close I was to my now in-laws. And I didn't have that relationship with him and my mom. And my husband didn't have that relationship with him and my mom. And he knew it was because of their views. He could tell right then and there I was keeping them at an arm's length. It wasn't just shy is 
a private person, shy, doesn't open up and, and, you know, talk about things. It was, she's keeping us out for a reason. And I think he saw that that day when he saw me interacting with my sister-in-law, my mother-in-law, and I was just hugging them and telling them I love them and stuff. And so that really was, I think, a a really big eye-opener. I assumed he had told my mom who I was marrying and what their beliefs were, but I didn't hear anything about it until 2018, a little bit after my mom had passed. We still had not reconnected at all. And my sister was talking about my wedding, and I just kind of asked her, I said, you know, did mom know? What What did she think? And she was like, I wasn't going to tell you because it was so rude. But mom did say, Shai needs to watch out. You know, marrying a Muslim, the first time they get into an argument, he's going to throw acid on her. I want to say I was surprised, but I wasn't. But I, I, I was kind of hurt to have somebody say something like that about my husband when they don't even know him. But I knew that us reconnecting would not have been an option. And... I was going to choose my beliefs and my relationship over hate. So if I wanted to love him, if I wanted to marry him and be with him, I couldn't have reconnected with my mom. It just would not have been possible. It would not have been good for my mental health. I did not want to subject him to that or my stepdaughter to that. I did not want them to ever feel attacked because of somebody that I introduced them to. Eventually, as time went on and I got older, I realized if I continued to carry this hate in my heart for the way that my family, for example, viewed the world, I was no better than them. Even if somebody holds different views than you, If you continue to spread hate, you are doing the same harm that they are, but with with different intentions. And your intentions don't necessarily make something positive. The racial views that my mom had were very deep-seated. And I do think As she got older, she may have struggled with them a little bit more, questioning them, seeing how the world was changing. But unfortunately, some people are unable to overcome the fact that they may have been wrong in something that they felt so strongly about. And sometimes it kind of has to be accepted. I was not able to change the way that my mom viewed the world or viewed anybody that was in it. But what I was able to do was to stop the the cycle of hatred, to stop the negativity. So I really try to approach everybody with empathy, with understanding, and with patience. It is really important to understand that hate will not make hate go away. The only thing that will make hate go away is love and compassion. I have to be able to give that back. And great job as always to Joey on the production of that piece and Cheyenne Rashid's parting statement 
Well, so true. Without empathy, how do you get to love? And without patience, how do you get to love? And my goodness, this country has stories like hers everywhere. All these different religions that used to war. Look, just Europe, if you think about it. All those countries that warred. Protestants and Catholics in Ireland warring until the 70s. But coming here to America, one generation changes it all by who they choose to love, who they choose to marry. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, by all means, go back and listen to them. We've covered the story of when Groucho Marx helped a young man get a job, the story of the greatest political prank in American history, and also the story of David Klein, the founder of Jelly Belly, plus so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib, and this is the Our American Stories Podcast. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.